And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation. Pastor Chip Ingram is with us on this edition of Lifeline. We're talking about his new book, Culture Shock. And Chip, just before the break, we were talking about this this slow slide into moral relativism, um, this abandonment of the sense of absolute truth. And then, of course, we also get into this challenge that the church often faces, as you were alluding to, that we, we either take one or the other, meaning that we either promote the truth without love, um, as if it's an either or, or share love without the truth. And this is not really a case of either or, is it? It's really both and. Well, when it's not both and, it doesn't work at all. And uh, I remember when I was teaching on probably the most controversial subject of homosexuality, uh, the evening we were filming it, because what, what I realized was there's a lot of people that are not going to read a book. There's a lot of parents that are not going to bring up these subjects. And so we put it on a small group. A DVD and also just digitally. And so as I went around the country, I met people everywhere who just said, we use these for family devotions, our small group, our Sunday school class. We've never talked about homosexuality in church or human sexuality or cohabitation or politics. And, um, and so that was the passion behind it. But what I can say is, the night I was teaching on homosexuality, I mean, you know, we're in the Bay Area and, you know, in Santa Cruz, of course, you know, I lived there 12 years and, you know, had lots of people both in and outside the church, in and out of the lifestyle, and, you know, we had a great ministry, too, and friendships, and talked very openly about those things, and so I was walking, I kind of hang out first 10, 15 minutes just to see who's here, say hi to people, and I walked up to a guy, and he bumped me, and he said, hey, man, this is uh, going to be pretty interesting, and there were some notes, and it said, what do you say to a gay friend? I said, well, why do you say that? He goes, well, I've been in the lifestyle my whole life, and my friend said I should come, so I'm here. So what do you say to gay friend? I'm, a, I'm the gay friend. And, uh, and so anyway, I said, well, where are you from? And we got a conversation. He stood up. We talked for, you know, eight, nine, ten minutes. And I said, well, hey, I'm, would you do me a favor, a huge favor? And they said, I don't know. I mean, we kind of hit it off. I said, when I get done, you're going to listen like few people. And I want to be fair to your position. I'm going to talk about sort of the historic Christian position, and I'm going to talk about, you know, the gay position. And I really want to be fair. I mean, even body language statistics, everything. When I get done, would you come up, because I'm going to do this again tomorrow a couple times, and honestly give me feedback. He looked at me, kind of slouched, and goes, yeah, I'll do that. So anyway, I get done, and you know, I'm wondering if he's going to come up, and so I, I get done with everything, and this guy comes up, comes up with his friend, and, and I literally pulled out my pen, and I took the back of my notes, and I said, fire away. I mean, he said, well, let me tell you something. He said, how you started it kind of blew me away. I said, well, how's that? Cause, and this gets to your point. He said, well, you started out and you apologized to the gay and lesbian community. And I thought, man, are you kidding me? I can't believe you did that in church. And then he said, a lot of us don't know much about Christianity, but under this big banner of Christianity, there's these people, and they say they're Christians, and they hold up placards, and they scream and yell, and sometimes they're violent. And, and, and you said, they're all, quote, truth with no love, and that is completely different than the way Jesus was. And he said, man, I'm not thinking, yeah, I've seen some of those people. They scare me, actually. He said, but then he said, there's people, and they call themselves Christians, and we don't know what's really a Christian, and they say it's okay to live together, it's okay to be married. In fact, some of us are, you know, ordained pastors and bishops and all the rest. And, and then you said, it's all love, and they want to be caring and accepting. But you said, how loving is it when you know that the average lifespan of a male homosexual in, in the San Francisco Bay Area is age 43. I mean, if I knew someone 
was doing something that caused them to live maybe 30 years less and didn't tell them, how loving could that be? And he looked at me and goes, I never thought about it that way. So he said, you know, and he gave me some good feedback. And, you know, it was very interesting when I got done. And, you know, as God is always teaching and prompting you. And we got done and we just had a connection. And I, I started to reach out my hand to shake his hand and thank him. And I realized, you know, the Spirit of God kind of whispered, this guy does not need a handshake. You know, he needs a hug. And I said, man, can I give you a hug? And I did. And, you know, we built a connection there and with his friend. And I, it was one of those moments I thought, oh, God, your word's powerful. When you really love people, even if you disagree and you know, then he began to tell me all of his journey and what he'd been through. And, uh, and what you realize is when you have compassion and you care about people, and now, it, he didn't agree with a lot of what I said. Um, eventually, that ends up being a really wonderful story from, you know, God's kingdom perspective. But what I saw was, you know, Craig, if we can know what we're talking about, if we cannot be threatened, if we cannot be defensive, but we have to be bold and courageous and really just the, the metaphor for me is light. Bring light. But people have to sense that you really care about them. And when that happens, I just, I just think a lot of this stuff melts away. So, so you mean that basically sharing this truth in love a lot like um, who else? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> you know, it's amazing how we tend to go for And we've all had these, these conversations or heard these stories. You sit down with a non-Christian individual, a friend, an acquaintance, and, and say, well, now, tell me your perspective on what the church is against. And they go through the whole laundry list. The church is against uh, you know, sex outside of marriage and uh, divorce, and the church is against homosexuality and abortion, and on and on the list goes. And they say, okay, now, tell me what the church is for. And there's dead silence. And it's that lack of balance. It's that, that, that sometimes the ability to truth tell but to fail to do so in love or to so in thoroughly embrace the love side of the story that we fail to tell the truth. And yet you look at Jesus, who was ultimately bold in all that he proclaimed when he was active in his ministry on earth. And yet everything that he said was always demonstrated with heartfelt love, demonstrative compassion toward the people that he was interacting with. Look at the woman at the well. Yeah, and I, and I love just, we, sometimes we forget, I think we get intimidated, we forget just how powerful, you know, God's Word is powerful. It's not us. You know, His Word is sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of men's hearts. I mean, the Gospel, it's the power of God's salvation, and I just finished up the book tour at Calvary Chapel at uh, Fort Lauderdale, and it's an amazing church, about 20,000 on the weekend and 10 campuses and a very warm, warm group. And, and um, you know, I, I basically taught through these things, and, of course, they have very much like San Francisco, a huge uh, gay and lesbian population. And, you know, we just walk through. These are the symptoms. God's not down or angry at people. Here's the issue of truth and why. And if you go back to Genesis, you know, I kind of had this moment that I'd never seen it this way until I was speaking there, and I thought, you know, when, before there's any sin, whether it's homosexual sin, heterosexual sin, lying, politics, manipulation, polluting the earth, before there's any sin, the first thing and most precious thing in the world is life. And after God brings life, the, next, the first thing he institute is marriage, a man and a woman, spiritually, emotionally, physically. And then they're to be fruitful, so they have family. And then when families begin to, to multiply, you have life in community. And these communities, if you get enough of them, it's a city. The Greek word for, for a city is polis, where we get our word politics. And then, then lots of cities 
fill up this place called the earth that's an environment. And I began to see, Craig, like never before, the thread between all of these is about lies. Abortion brings death before it gets started. Sexual immorality, it doesn't matter whether it's homosexual or heterosexual, whether it's cohabitation. I mean, I, and, and there I, said to, I said, how many of you here, okay, let's just talk about this. You're a wife, and you found out your husband has a pornography addiction. What did it do to your relationship? You, you're, you're, a, you're, a, you're a guy, and you found out your wife had an affair. What did it do to your relationship? Uh, you, you know, were abused as a kid, and you got involved in a homosexual relationship, whatever. But it, it, you just watch it. Life, the institution of marriage, and then when you look at family, and, you know, now we look at kids, pain, death. Every one of these things really are a lie that has caused destruction and separation and pain. And uh, Jesus is the life giver, and his word gives life. And people just need to see ordinary people like you and me love people that they don't think we would love. And we've got to demonstrate it. And um, this book is about getting equipped to do that. Ordinary people. I'm, my prayer is for a grassroots movement of people who read the book, people who share the book, people who do the small group, and then people who are bold in the business place and ask more questions than comments are being defensive. You know, it's just people make these blatant statements, you know, blah, 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 blah. And just be able to say, wow, that is an interesting perspective. I've heard that a lot. And instead of, why do you believe that? Where, where does that go? If we would start asking the questions sort of with the gentleness, what I found is most people will tell you all their stuff and then say, well, well what do you believe and why? And if, if you can articulate clearly, kindly, lovingly, then a dialogue occurs. It doesn't a lot of this, though, Chip, also go back to the importance of the church embracing the truth? And I, and I pose that question because quite often not only do we fail to, to engage another individual, and I was struck by the fact as you shared that story with the gentleman that you spoke to um, during uh, one of your recent trips, that there was a connection between the two of you. And, and sometimes we fail to make that connection, and I think in part because not only do we fail to try to understand the other person, where they're coming from, and why they believe what they believe, but there's also a sense of intimidation, I think, by many of us in the church, because we know what we believe. We just don't know why we believe it. It's something we've always heard. It's been preached from the pulpit. We've never taken time to go deep enough within God's Word to understand why that is true from God's perspective. Well, you're right. And what I, what I found out on these particular issues, I did, um, you know, God gives me these little promptings. And so I said, okay, if you open the doors, I'll do it. And so all last year, I, I spoke at a bunch of colleges. I mean, bellwether, great evangelical institutions, and then did a couple things with Campus Crusade. And so I was with 20-somethings. I mean, I mean, a lot. And, and then I, when I got there, I would, I would say, how many of you in church, youth group, college, anything, have ever heard a message on the environment? No hands go up. How many have ever heard it on church and politics, or what your role is and what the church? No, none. How many people have ever heard a message or had a discussion on homosexuality? Zero. So, you know, on the one hand, how about, how about abortion? You know, okay, four hands go up. Um, how about human sexuality? Yeah, we heard white. <laughs> you know, but, you know, and, you know, and so you just want to say, why are we shocked when we haven't taught in our homes or taught in the church what God has to say, and from God's perspective, that it's good, that it's kind, that he's loving, that it's for your best. Uh, I, you could hear a pin drop when I, when I spoke uh, at another place, and I was in Atlanta at a church, and it was a, a lot of young people, and 
and I just I was trying to kind of give fair. Everyone wants to jump on the homosexual bandwagon. I said I, I'm actually more concerned about cohabitation in the church, you know. And when you and and I said now here's the deal. If you understand now, we have research and science. God cares about us. His His word and His rules are for our good. Statistically, if you cohabitate, and about 60% of people cohabitate, eventually get married. But if you cohabitate, whether you get married or not, 10 years later, here's, here's the studies. One out of 10 couples are still together 10 years later. Wow. And, and, and so I'm saying, so I'm just saying to a group of people, God's not a prude. It's not like he makes up these rules and tries to mess with you or doesn't want you to have sex or all the rest. It's like, here's the game plan. Engineers design things. How? So they work really, really well. God has designed life, relationships, sex, money in a way that it works great. So we shift him out of that role of being the big cosmic killjoy that a lot of people think he is and realize that there's actually purpose behind his plan for us. Yeah, I love the passage in Psalm 84. It was my dating verse when I thought, oh, God, you know, how can I live here? It says, no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And I just sort of hung on to that and said, well, tell you what, everybody else on the basketball team with four girls to every guy is having an awful lot of fun that I keep hearing about, and it's very hard to be sexually pure. And uh, I look back now after 35 years of marriage and four kids, and I didn't do it perfectly for sure. But, you know, it's, again... God's ways are good. You know, the Lord, the Lord uh, rewarded you with a wonderful woman in Teresa, and uh, and obviously once again demonstrative of the fact that if we are faithful to His words and keep His commandments, He will be faithful and will reward us. Chip Ingram, our guest today on this edition of Lifeline, a look at culture shock. We'll take a brief time out. When we come back, a look at the difference between warring fractions and warring worldviews as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation with Chip Ingram. He, of course, author of Culture Shock, a biblical response to today's most divisive issues. The notebook, by the way, published by Baker Books. You'll find it at bookstores around the Bay Area through Amazon.com. And you can also get more information on Chip and the book on his ministry website at livingontheedge.org. That's livingontheedge.org. You call the book Culture Shock, yet we know that... We're in the middle of culture wars. There's a sense of warning worldviews, to be sure. Sadly, though, Chip, as you've been pointing out, we sometimes reduce this down to simply warring people. We see each other as the enemy as opposed to really understanding who the enemy is and what he's done here in terms of leading us, including the church, quite frankly, down this slippery slope away from absolute truth into sort of this dissolving of our moral compass into situational ethics and, and relative truth. The big question is... How do we get back to understanding that there are absolute truths? Well, one, I think we've got to start with our, with our kids and uh, early on. And I think part of it we need to also understand how we got here. Because this is, I mean, people think this is how the world has always been. This is the way it is. And I think um, for some who enjoy sort of the, the intellectual philosophical journey, which is you know, I may not be an intellectual, but I love to read and think. And when I see the journey, it's very helpful for me. Then I realize, oh, wow, this is how we got. So I, I listen, I process all the time around our supper table. And, you know, my kids were just, they'd, they'd laugh and sometimes, come on, Dad. You know, I'd pause. Okay, do you understand what's happening in this commercial? What's the presuppositions? What are they telling us? What are the assumptions? 
because I wanted them to learn to think. And so I think part of that is it's got to start with us as parents. I think the other thing, um, Craig, is we have got to return to just uh, a, a commitment and a, a zeal and a desire for God's Word. You know, when Jesus was praying about his church, you know, whether people believe in absolute truth or not, um, Jesus said this, you'll know the truth if you abide and apply it, and the truth will set you free. And on the very last night, he prayed, oh, Father, set them apart, make them holy. How? By your word. Your word is truth. And so I think until we get back in the scriptures, and not just little diddly devotionals or hearing from a pastor on the weekend, uh, David said, if your word had not been my delight, it would have perished in my affliction. You know, how can a young man keep his way pure? You guard it according to your word. And so I think that we've got, there's got to be a resurgence of commitment to the scripture. I don't think you can take in the scripture and let the spirit of God get it down deep in your soul and still have situational ethics or moral relativism. Well, again, I think that that fervent application of diving into God's Word, studying to show oneself approved of God. I, I'm reminded, Chip, and every once in a while, that I'd love to pull this story out. You probably heard it, too. Um, when he asked the question, well, now, when someone gets a job working for a bank, my goodness, a bank tellers a deal with tens of thousands of dollars across that teller's window every day, and there's so many reports about uh, falsified bills going around and so forth. So how do they learn how to memorize what all those phony bills look like? And and the simple, true answer is they don't teach them what all the false bills look like because there's dozens of them out there. But what they do is they teach them to study what the real bill looks like. And when they study that bill, commit it to heart and to memory, the minute false bill comes across their desk, they'll know it. And I think the same thing is true when it comes to truth. If we study to show ourselves approved and we immerse ourselves in God's Word and do so dutifully and fervently, when false teaching comes along or, or a competing truth, another something that would present itself as, as another truth comes along, we will know so much about the truth of God's Word hidden in our heart that we'll instantly be able to recognize it and reject it. Well, I really agree with you, and I have to say, you know, I've, I ended up not really intentionally. I always kind of went back and got more education just to get to do the next thing, and my parents were educators, but I never was really all that impressed with education, and I mean, it's been very helpful, and I'm glad I had to learn a bunch of languages, but it was hard, and I didn't really like it a lot, except I like to learn, but here's what I could tell you. Of all the people that have taught me the most, that had the greatest impact, it was a bricklayer in West Virginia with a high school education. And what he did is he helped me develop the habit of making the very first appointment every day to get a great cup of coffee, open your Bible, read systematically, slowly, uh, meditatively, talk with your Heavenly Father, and literally ask Him, you know what's coming today. And beginning to master and read through the Scriptures on a regular basis. And I will tell you, I think that practice has been more helpful than all the Greek and Hebrew and degrees and anything ever. It has been holding on to God's Word, memorizing key passages, hearing God speak to me on a daily basis. And, you know, after the services, you know, I, I hang out and, and just talk with people what's going on in their life, Greg. And, you know, a lot of the problems that we get into, we're, we're trying to fill a hole we believe a lie and I most always, I try and do it as gently as possible, and they talk about, you know, I got this addiction, I got that addiction, this has happened, I lost my job, and, you know, this, and I'll just, can I just ask you something, you know, very gently, 
tell me a little bit about the habitual habit of you being in God's Word. And, and you know, their eyes kind of look at their feet, and, uh, you know, I don't really read the Bible at all. And it's just like, okay, so you have a car, and you put no gas in it, and you just cannot figure out why it's not running at all or running well. And, you know, Jesus said that men won't live by bread, physical alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And again, it's not a legalistic thing. It's not shoving it down people's throat. It's not, you know, telling the kids, sit down, shut up, and I'm going to read 10 chapters to you. <laughs> but it's, it's from the heart. It's life. And um, that's my heart's passion. And uh, I, I would long to just to see those listening to us now to say, you know, what would it look like to block off 15 minutes first thing in the morning? And I, I will tell you what, I don't know what problem, what issue, what challenge. We all have relationship issues. We've got marriage issues, single issues, financial issues, emotional issues. But I will tell you, um, the greatest thing you can do is begin to think God's thoughts after him. And uh, a lot of those things amazingly can clear up. A look at Culture Shock, a biblical response to today's most divisive issues. The new book, again, published by Baker and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, Amazon, and, of course, through the Living on the Edge website at livingontheedge.org. That's livingontheedge.org. Chip Ingram. Chip, as always, brother, a delight and a privilege to have you on the program. Look forward to visiting with you again real soon. Well, thank you, and we are so deeply grateful. Actually, many people may not know that I think the second station we ever we're ever on with thanks to KFAX and the journey with you guys, and God has really blessed us, and we're very, very grateful. So All right. Well, we appreciate it. We'll do. You do the same, and we appreciate the partnership in the ministry. There's Chip Ingram. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. For those who have loved ones currently in the hospital who have perhaps lost a loved one, it raises many of the why God questions. Why does God allow things to happen like this? And when we're in these kinds of times, whether we're talking about the tragedy of what unfolded yesterday in Boston, to the loss of a child, to maybe just the day-to-day challenges that we face in life, oftentimes we, we feel as if we're kind of groping about, and we're, we're wondering in the middle of the darkness of our experience, how do we find God? Coincidentally, a new title of a book called, called Finding God in the Dark, and it's co-written by my next guest, Ted Gluck. Ted, of course, has been on the program previously. We talked to him uh, some months ago regarding his best-selling book, Dallas and the Spitfire. Back again to join us today. And, Ted, it's always great to have you on the show. Hey, Craig. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Boy, the timing of our conversation today in the wake of the tragedy of Boston yesterday, again, it just touches on so many levels e- emotionally and, and spiritually. Kind of give me your overall sense, um, particularly in the spirit in which uh, you wrote this book along with Ronnie Martin. Um, We're in these moments, be it the tragedy of yesterday to simply maybe losing a job, losing a loved one. We grapple with this sense of where God, why God? Yeah, we really do. I mean, you you hit the nail on the head. These These are existential questions. You know, these are questions that that strike to the core of our existence, and um, they really strike to the core of how it is that we think about God. And, um, you know, as, as I prepared for the show tonight, I, I knew you were going to ask me about this, and I was, I was talking it over and, and praying about it with my wife, and I was reminded of the verse in First Thessalonians that says, you know, as Christians, we don't grieve like those who have no hope, and, you know, but we still grieve, you know, and, and whether you're intimately involved in a situation like this, or, or whether you're just kind of observing it from the outside. I mean, you're grieved. And 
I'm reminded of the the doctrine of total human depravity. You know, the idea that that we're all sinners in this world with sick hearts, and that there's no hope for us, and there's there's nothing good apart from Christ. And I think, you know, what what you take from this event. I mean, you watch the media and you hear things like, you know, we're going to do everything we can, and you know, there's all kinds of kind of governmental slash military finagling going on, and and. On one hand, you you root for that, and you're you're hopeful that something will be done. But you know, as Christians, we know that um, apart from the cross and apart from Christ, you know, there's really there's not a good answer. You know, there's not a great hopeful thing that that Obama or anyone else can say to people to really make them feel better. So, you know, I think for us, maybe the takeaway is an opportunity to to, to recognize the sin in our own hearts. And you know, much of my book deals with that. You know, this idea that. You know, it wasn't until I really humbled myself and threw myself at the foot of the cross that I had any joy and any peace in this life. And I think we were reminded that we don't find our joy and peace in circumstances or situations. You know, it, it isn't God's job to, to make everything perfect for us, um, uh, but He does find us, He does seek us out, and He does give us the opportunity to, to humble ourselves and, and find joy and peace in Him. You know, what you say, I know even with my listeners eavesdropping on this conversation right now. We, we, we resonate with what you say. We, we certainly readily give a mental assent to your observations. And yet oftentimes, isn't there that disconnect that we experience, meaning that we understand, for example, if we want to just kind of uh, coldly in a very calculated manner dissect what transpired yesterday, it is you know, man's depravity, it is separation of God, from God by, by sin, it is our inclination to do wrong and evil and the influence of the enemy in our lives. We understand all of that, and we can certainly, in many ways, kind of pigeonhole or categorize the pain of yesterday into those categories. We give complete, total mental assent to those realities. And yet there's this disconnect where emotionally, though, we're still saying, but wait a minute, God, I mean, aren't you supposed to come in and kind of, you know, save the day? Uh, We look at this and say, well, you know, of all the people that died yesterday, uh, three all told, why did one of them have to be an eight-year-old boy? And suddenly now we're kind of emotionally uh, and spiritually wrestling with God over these things. Yeah, we are, you know, and I I fully agree. And I think, you know, for those of us who, who grew up Christian or grew up in evangelical homes like I did, I mean, I think I I spent a lot of years just intellectually assenting to things and not really feeling or experiencing them. And there's this this strange tension in the church where you know you're you're clinging to truth and you have biblical truth, but yet you you still want to experience things. You want to feel comforted. And you know, for me, uh, I think the Bible is full of of examples of people who you know cling to cling to Christ and cling to cling to God in the midst of really horrible things that are happening to them. And on one level, you, you, you don't really maybe find comfort in their stories, but I, I find comfort in the idea that there's a model for how we can cling to the Lord in those times, how we can cry out to the Lord, how, you know, King David, who, you know, the Bible says was a man after God's own heart, but, but was also this horrible sinner. You know, he was a, an adulterer and a murderer, and he has the audacity and the, and the courage, really, to ask God for a clean heart. And then he asked God to restore his joy. And this is, you know, when people are pursuing him and, and chasing after him to take his life, you know, he even he even clings to, to the Lord for joy in that. And, you know, as to how that comforts, you know, someone who's who's grappling with the reality of yesterday, I don't know, but I'm but I'm glad it's there. And I'm glad, 
you know, the Bible gives us a, a model for how we're to do that. And I've, I've found, I mean, my experience has been um, that there's really been no earthly comfort outside of that. And, you know, sometimes we can't explain these things away. We can't, um, you know, God doesn't let us know immediately why it's happening. Um, but, but that feeling of joy and peace, even in the midst of, uh, of life's terrible storms, I mean, that's something that uh, experientially we can we can look to the Lord and just say thank you. There's yeah. one thing, though, that tends to kind of complicate this, and after a brief time out, I want to kind of dig deeper. We, we spoke of the, the mental ascent to what we understand to be true from God's perspective, from God's Word. Then there's kind of the emotional struggles that we go uh, go into, where we, we understand intellectually what's going on, and yet emotionally still there's that sense of disillusionment and fear and doubt and unbelief. The third aspect that kind of complicates this scenario is the big cover-up, and we'll talk about that when we come back after a brief time out. Best-selling author Ted Kluck is with us today, a look at finding God in the dark. I'm Craig Roberts, back with more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We continue our visit with best-selling author Ted Kluck. He, along with co-author Ronnie Martin, have written a new book called Finding God in the Dark. Now, we talked a bit about that sense of giving mental assent to what we know are the realities of what's going on in these kind of circumstances, Ted, and yet oftentimes uh, being just overwhelmed by emotional senses of, of doubt and fear and disillusionment. But then there's kind of the other third item that I think tends to complicate this, and you talk about it in the book. It's something that we evangelicals in particular seem to be very adept at, and that is um, kind of faking our way through pain, you know, painting on the smile and, and getting past the greeter at the door at church on Sunday or, you know, uh, giving the obligatory, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? When, in fact, we're really not. And I'm wondering if sometimes that sets up a barrier that really blocks us from the ability to deal with how we're feeling and kind of find the sort of uh, peace and relief that we seek. Yeah, I think it absolutely does, and I think, you know, I wrote about it in the book. I was absolutely guilty of that for so many years, you know. The issues were different for me in that, you know, our our hard times, our dark places, if you will, were infertility, um, a failed adoption, um, some vocation-related failures that I was experiencing, and instead of, you know, being humbled and clinging to the cross and those things, for a lot of years I just got more bitter, you know, more bitter, more cynical, um, but week after week, day after day, you know, Sunday after Sunday, I would go into church and, and, you know, I was, I was everybody's buddy and, and the back slapping lobby guy with a smile for everybody. But inside I was really dying, you know, and I was really struggling with, you know, how do I love a God who, uh, would put me through this quite frankly was, was my thought process. And, um, it was really tough, you know, and, and thankfully the, the same institution that was hard for me in that, the church. Um, it was tough to go to church, and it was tough to see everybody else, I thought, prospering, you know, while I was kind of circling the drain, I thought. But um, it was that same institution that ended up being, you know, such a help and such a comfort for me as the Holy Spirit uh, pursued me out of that. I guess the irony is that a lot of us are often going through this, whether it's the way in which a whole community suffers, such as in the wake of the Boston bombing, or individual families. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one 
the loss of a job. As you point out in your case, it was an adoption that right on the cusp of, of everything coming together, um, your uh, your little Ukrainian daughter, who who was literally the 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 sister of, of one of your adopted boys, uh, mm-hmm. another couple stepped in and the law did what it did uh, thousands of miles away and that whole adoption process fell apart. That created a great deal of pain in your life. And I guess maybe the issue oftentimes here is when we're going through pain or fear or doubt or disillusionment, uh, we want to keep up a happy face. You know, nobody typically posts on Facebook what a terrible day that they're having or what an awful meal that they had. They we all tend to kind of want to be uh, happy and, and, and sort of, you know, put on the dog, so to speak. And yet behind that mask oftentimes lurks an awful lot of pain. Yeah, that's so right, man. I, I think oftentimes we're our own best press agents. And, you know, from being in Christian media and Christian entertainment, as I am, you know, there, there is this often kind of creepy, you know, motivation to self-promote. And um, I find I found myself doing a ton of that, you know. Uh, again, on Facebook, my Facebook persona was, you know, I was this happy, successful guy with a great family and, um, you know, all kinds of success and all kinds of exciting things happening. But you know, for anybody who knew me then or, or anybody who was close to me then, you know, the opposite was really true. And um, it wasn't until, you know, I heard some convicting preaching. Um, it wasn't until I, you know, I went to some friends of mine in the church, uh, a pastor and an elder, and just said, look, I'm I'm struggling here. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm really dying here. I'm really bitter, and uh, I need your help. You know, um, thank God, you know, for me that the Holy Spirit pursued me in that way and, uh, and, and kind of led me to do that, because I think even though the circumstances really haven't changed, you know, this book isn't one of those stories where, you know, we pray a couple of times and then we get rich and have a bunch of kids and everything starts going right for us. You know, the, the circumstances are the same, essentially, um, but, but Christ has given me a lot of joy and a lot of peace in the midst of that, so I'm thankful. What's the big takeaway? Um, as both you and Ronnie have shared a lot of personal pain in this book, what are you hoping to be the big takeaway for readers and for our listeners tonight? Yeah, you know what? I think a couple of things. Number one, we can feel so alone in our churches um, when we do struggle and when we are in dark places. And uh, Ronnie and I hope that this book would kind of be the, the friend that we don't have in churches, you know, the the person who's willing to be honest about their own struggles and their own sins and their own you know, dark places. So hopefully it'll be a comfort to people on that level. But um, I think the other takeaway really is just a, a simple presentation of the gospel. You know, that if we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord and we acknowledge our sinful hearts and our brokenness, that He'll lift us up, you know, and He'll um, He'll redeem us and He'll give us peace and He'll give us, you know, the, the clean hearts and the, and the joy of our salvation that David talks about in Psalm 51. And, you know, I think in, in different ways and in different struggles, um, Ronnie and I have both uh, experienced that, and we wanted to, you know, to write the book as a really an outpouring of thanks to uh, to a Lord who would who would do that for us. You know, a couple of really sinful, screwed up guys. We have a lot of observers right now who they themselves are asking questions, who do not currently have a relationship with the Lord, and I know it's easy sometimes to come up with pat answers. But from a sincere standpoint, as as maybe people out there who are not believers are seeking answers and and asking the why God questions as well, what what do you tell these people in, in terms of how they can find God in the dark? I think keep asking and keep seeking, and um, you know the the Holy Spirit will find you. You know I, I think 
you know, we serve a Lord who, who finds us and who pursues us and who loves us enough to, you know, to, to, to come after us at times. And, you know, I think if, if people are asking questions, that's a great sign. You know, I don't think you, I don't think you get anywhere in this life without asking the hard questions. And, you know, again, you know, there's this, there's this weird tension in the church where you're just so, sometimes you feel like you're supposed to smile and show up and, um, everything will be great for you. But, you know, it really wasn't until Ronnie and I started, ask, started asking those hard questions that, um, that we got any peace. And um, so I would say keep asking. I would say, you know, search for truth. I mean, I think we're, we live in a culture where um, it's very cool and it's very sexy to, to be journeying and never arrive anywhere. Um, it's cool to be a seeker but not a, a, a pursuer of truth. But I would say, you know, seek hard after truth in Scripture and, uh, and see how the Lord reveals himself to you. A look at finding God in the dark. Ted Cluck, along with Ronnie Martin, the authors of this new book. And the book, by the way, is recently published by, i got to get my cheaters on here, boy. Reaching that age, are you, Roberts? Bethany House Publishers, and you can find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also get it through Ted's website at tedcluck, K-L-U-C-K. Dot com. And our thanks again to Ted Cluck for visiting with us in this segment of Lifeline. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Media Group. All rights reserved.